The expressed views of the guests on this podcast are theirs alone and not necessarily endorsed by the host, TWBC, or any associated sponsor. Conversations that are robust yet balanced, on point and to the point. You are listening to The Talk of Tournament Water Skiing. This is the TWBC Podcast. And now, here's your host, Tony Lightfoot. Well, greetings one and all, and welcome to this, the latest edition of the uh, the TWBC podcast. I am the aforementioned Tony Lightfoot, uh, thanking you for your support once again. All right, then, uh, this, uh, this, this, uh, this next uh, interview, or rather episode of the TWBC podcast... Uh, Took a little, took a little bit of a while to arrange uh, uh, with, uh, with with my, with my subject, but uh, but taking into account uh, what's happened over the last uh, last few days. It uh, it would it would seem to, seem to me that uh, you know in in a relative sense uh, uh, good things or rather more dramatic things come to those who wait, and uh, with that in mind, uh, I'm actually uh, interviewing uh, my good friend from Italy, the organizer of the San Gervasio Pro Am, along with his good friends Claudio Bonatti and his uh, father, and also of the recent uh, Europe and Africa Water Ski Championships. I therefore introduce to you all uh, Matteo Luzzeri. How are you doing? Tony, I'm good, man. Thank you for having me. I'm glad. I'm glad we get to do this. All right, then. Absolutely. Uh, so, lat, 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 last few days, I'm guessing uh, the word has kind of got out in the water ski community uh, with uh, with the injuries you you, you sustained. Uh, but uh, but tell us a little bit more about it and uh, what the prognosis is uh, for uh, for recovery uh, from from here on outwards. Yeah, so um, we were the, all together at the European Championships last week, and uh, I was in the in the men's slalom final, and uh, yeah, I was somewhere mid pack or no, sorry, towards the end of the final, and there were already big scores in front of us, including Brando Caruso, who started with a four at ten two five off the dock, I think third skier off the dock, so you could sense the the nerves and tension and motivation on on the, on the side of the lake let's say for us who were warming up and uh, I went in as aggressive as I could I knew that I had to chase big scores and uh, I was running late at 10-7 pretty much out of two ball and so I was chasing and then I, I got into a five ball with a lot of heat but I also had a little bit of a headwind and I decided that I needed to turn right there and then in order to get a shot at running the pass. And uh, I sank the ski probably as I would imagine as much as it could have sank before snapping. And, uh, and I blew the tail. Now, right before I blew the tail, my front binding released and the back quite didn't. It was a strange fall. Uh, you've seen it. You were you were announcing uh, I was moving, I, I was having a lot of momentum forward, down course, let's say, but I had already committed to a strong turn. So when the tail blew, the ski both turned and kept moving forward. So I didn't really get a, like my foot wasn't, let's say the relationship between my body and my foot wasn't such that the back foot could release. And so uh, for the second time in my career, I found myself with a uh, uh, ruptured Achilles. Okay, so uh, how, how, I mean, how sharp and, and how immediate was, uh, was the pain from that type of injury? It's, uh, it's strange. It's a very sharp and intense pain. And you actually hear the, the, the bang, right? Like, and I mean the sound of it. You hear it just snapping like... The best I could give you is like a, a, a shot from a firearm or like a whip, the sound of a whip. Uh, but I heard it right away. And, uh, and because it's not the first time that it happens, uh, I knew exactly what happened. And the problem was in the, the, the foot is the left foot and it's my back foot. And uh, I was using a rubber Wiley. And to be honest, Tony, a very loose and large Wiley binding, so my last thought would have been to snap an Achilles in that one. Um, but basically, what happened is after I broke the Wiley, the sorry, after I broke the Achilles, the 
rap, the, the wraps of the Wiley were pushing inward. So actually, if you can think of the back of a rubber binding, they were going towards my toes, right? And that's why I was, I was calling the boat to come back. And luckily, uh, PJ Lager was in the boat. Um, he, I asked him for some scissors and we immediately cut the binding and took a second to get the, the nimble foot out. But I, I knew, I knew right away that I, I had broken it. Okay. So how long ago was it uh, that, that you ruptured uh, the, the Achilles tendon uh, the, the first time around? So it was uh, end of September of 2014. Um, so I had just started a PhD in Tallahassee and uh, I came back from a pro tournament at Jack's, uh, actually skiing my PB there and then first practice set at Lake 38, um, blew the tail on an offside. It was the front foot at that time. Uh, stupidingly, I had a non-releasable front binding and uh and there was no way i mean I, I, that one that one i really uh played with the with fire and and paid paid dues this time i i had a very loose soft big rubber binding in the back okay so so uh you, you you probably didn't go too much into the prognosis from here on out, uh, but uh, but I am glad that you uh, that you brought up uh, your PhD studies in Florida State because that can, that's going to go a long way uh, to to form in one of my next questions. But uh, how how long is it going to take? Uh, how long does it typically take for an Achilles rupture to to heal to the point where you could actually go back out there and ski? So, you know, when it happened nine years ago, the first thing I did was to contact fellow skiers that had the same issue. And at the time I knew um, Glenn Campbell had it, Karina Nolan had it. And uh, I heard anywhere between five to eight months, uh, depending on a lot of factor, depending on uh, type of surgery, whether it was the front or the back foot. Um, but my surgeon at the time, nine years ago, said anywhere between three to six months, which I know sounds very broad, um, but it did happen in October. So I had a, a whole off season to recuperate and, and I took my first set shy of six months. This time, uh, I don't know. Uh, I, we didn't speak at length with my surgeon here about uh, coming back schedule, what, but I'm keeping six months as some type of uh, guideline. Uh, might be a little less, might be a little more, um, but we'll see. The, the one thing that worries me, Tony, is that is my back foot, and which takes like, which uh, takes uh, a good which takes a good portion of the pressure. I mean, coming 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 off the turn, and it's just much more extended, right? So the the ski is never quite at zero degrees. It's always tip up, tail down. So if you think about the, the position of your ankle in, in your back binding or toe loop, whatever you, you use, it's, it's more bent. So that tendon is further stretched. Um, and so I don't know. I don't know. It might be six. It might be eight. Who knows? All right then. So so let's do let's do a little bit of a, a of a comparison between what you what you did and what was it nine years ago and what you've recently uh, gone through. When whenever you whenever you ruptured your Achilles tendon uh, in the first instance, you were just about to go into your PhD uh, PhD studies on the sports psychology. Now you're nine years later. You're a doctor. Uh, Matteo Lizzeri, uh, as doctor of sports psychology, uh, have do I mean with that kind of passage of time and with the uh, with the acquired knowledge uh, that you've that you've gained uh, during that program, kind of give me a kind of give us a sense of of how you're going how you're going to approach uh, the uh, recovery from this injury, but armed with the knowledge that you have now compared to uh, what you didn't have before uh, nearly a decade ago. See, this is a very good and multifaceted question, right? Because uh, I do have a couple of advantages now. I have knowledge in, uh, in Achilles injury, just because I've been through it. 
and I know roughly speaking the stages. Uh, and I also know a little bit about what is a healthy way to sustain, you know, uh, recovery from an injury and eventually return to play or in our case return to ski um, with this particular injury the frustrating thing is that for two months I can't do anything towards rehab right so you hear uh, as you know in recent uh, months we have had a, a, quite a number of skiers particularly female jumpers uh, going through ACL surgery and that is a very long process but current protocols basically dictate to be active within two weeks of surgery. Two to three weeks, you're already doing something towards betterment of your condition. Whereas with the Achilles, I just have to stay put for two months, roughly speaking. So Be Because, uh, because the Achilles is more weight-bearing compared to the ACL, right? It's weight-bearing, and they basically... Mine was, again, a full rupture, so they had to to insert one part of the tendon into the other and stitch it up. Uh, and so they, they need to make sure that that tissue starts to scar properly and, and heal properly before you work towards first uh, lengthen it back to a normal length and secondly to eventually regain muscle in your calf, um, like in your lower leg. So as of right now, I had surgery on Tuesday it went very well. Uh, luckily, it's not too complicated of a surgery, so uh, took about an hour. Uh, the tendon was in good shape, meaning it wasn't frayed from overuse, but it was snapped. Um, so that brought a couple of advantages. They didn't have to take muscle tissue elsewhere in order to, uh, let's say, thicken the Achilles tendon which is a, a standard procedure, particularly from people that they have it breaking without a trauma, like as opposed to, to me. Um, but they did use this, it's pretty interesting. They used the, um, the longest tendon we have in our body uh, is from the, uh, I don't know how to say that in English, but it's a, it's a small muscle uh, that, we, that we have in our calf that we don't really use. It's a bit of a, inheritance from primates uh, and then muscle used to be used to curl your feet um, and in fact like one out of ten people don't have it anymore but but it has a long thin uh, tendon that oftentimes is used to uh, strengthen the Achilles suture uh, in the case of a rupture and so that's what they used for me uh, they use this um, this particular tendon to to strengthen the, the suture of the of the Achilles. All right and, then. Yeah. Okay, so so, so for going from the physical more to the mental aspect, which which is basically your wheelhouse. Uh, you you as I mentioned, you are a doctor of sports psychology. Uh, your your uh, I mean the, I mean the prognosis is pretty much set in set in stone. It's going to be like about eight months of very at the very least so how is how is that going to weigh on your mind uh, psy uh, psychologically compared to ha your original injury which you did nine seasons ago well uh it's going to be tougher this time uh particularly as i said these first two months um you can't do anything towards betterment and you can you're not very mobile i mean my foot is in a cast uh with toes pointing down so i can't walk I can't really sit properly to do even just, you know, a bit of like upper body or exercise. So the challenge right now in the next two months is going to be to keep myself busy mentally. Um, as you know, I manage a ski school, so there's plenty of things outside of the boat that I can do. Even from here on Lake Iseo, I, I came to stay at my parents for the next short term future in order to, to be assisted a bit. It, it's a little hard to cook and, and do other daily functions with, with this condition. Um, but, uh, but I think, that, as I said, the first two months are going to be the hardest because uh, let alone that I can't ski, I, it's hard to be in the boat with this. And I love coaching. Um, but I will do my best to be at the lake and, and, and be around. 
uh, and then, you know, uh, the, the way I see it is if it's six months, it's end of January. If it's eight months, it's, it's end of March. So considering a, a typical Northern Hemisphere season, it shouldn't be that big of a difference. Um, the one important thing, I'll tell you this, the one important thing is that I want to be told, like I was told nine years ago, that when the time comes, I can just ski. Meaning, you know, uh, it'll take a number of sets before you regain physical strength, like skiing strength and skiing feeling, but without any worries about the tendon. That's what I look forward to. And until uh, I hear those words from my surgeon, I, I'm not going to ski. Um, I just want to be reassured that once I, I, I put my foot in a, in a toe loop from now on, uh, I'll, uh, I'll be able to start doing what I love again. Well, that, well, that's probably going to be going to be the, probably one of the major obstacles to undergo because obviously you're you're you had a rear rear widey's binding and both of your feet were basically locked down to a certain extent. Now you're going to have to go to the toe loop, which is which is favoured by more of the skiing population, but it's a, it it's a different type of skiing, you know, uh, ba- uh, compared to skiing with both feet in. For sure, for sure. Uh, the, the weird thing is, I did, I've done it for the vast majority of my skiing career. And then for a number of reasons, uh, basically testing different things for fluid motions in, in, on my back foot, I sort of got stuck to a non-toe loop uh, type of binding in the back. And, uh, and that's what I've been using for the last five years. Uh, but my whole skiing career has been with a toe loop. And then in the winter of between 19 and 20, I did try to go back to a toe loop and I spent about 20 sets and I was struggling, but I was struggling performance wise, right? And like any other fellow skiers, uh, I, I would imagine in my situation, I sort of said, ah, the hell with it. I'll, I'll, I'll go back to my, my rubber boot. I've been skiing well with it. Why changing now? Uh, well, now I have a strong reason to change, uh, but I, but I do believe that the toe loop is better. I think if you, if you notice the frequency of people that, that have a, that don't have a toe loop in the back is, is diminishing. I mean, I recall very well in Monaco, they called all the eight of us that made the final up on or nearby the podium. And I was the only one without something in the back of like some, I was the only one out of the eight, the top eight with a, a, a binding in the back and not a toe loop. Um, and I think that if you go down the, the list of skiers that don't use a toe loop in the back right now, it's a very short list. So there's also very sound technical reasons to do that change, but now it's also a, a risk diminishing factor. All right then. So, uh, so, Eight months away from uh, fr- from uh, from getting back out onto the water, so uh, so you'll be busy uh, running ski school as 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 you mentioned. Uh, I mean, it's obviously going to be frustrating for you. Uh, I mean, mean 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 working working with the ski school, you probably won't get in the boat all that much, you know. So I mean, so I mean, who who will you have to to basically uh, pick pick up uh, uh, the, uh, uh, the 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 shortfall uh, in uh, compared to your uh, uh, lack of uh, lack of motion going forwards, well, that's uh, the, the, the full staff at Jolly, as you know, is Gennady Guraglia, Claudio Benatti, our technical director, and then myself. Um, with the current situation, we are trying to readjust the schedule of reservations and and, and practices that have been booked from now until November. Basically, uh, I do feel that once. I'm out of the cast, which should be either four or five weeks. Then I'll be wearing what they call like a, a therapod or a walking boot, you know. And even though I might not be able to, to walk for another two or three weeks at the beginning, at least that thing can get wet and I'm much more protected because it's basically like a walking boot with a lot of air and cushions around. Um, so at that stage, I'll feel more comfortable in in getting into the boat um and so from then on i think we'll be fine i think the main challenge is this month of august which incidentally we're not super busy or as busy as usual 
because a lot of our clientele is young European kids and now they all have their nationals, the uh, under 17 Europeans, which are next week. Um, there's, there's, there's a lot of tournaments for kids around. So August is actually incidentally more manageable. Um, and then I think in September, I'll be able to, to bring my, my contribution in the boat as well. The, the, one, the one stage I remember from nine years ago that it's a, it's a life changer in this recovery is once you can walk. Even though it's with the boot, you're sort of like a little bit more independent. Um, uh, I mean, it's, it's, a big, it's a big change in how you, you carry yourself throughout the day. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, and, and the, I don't know if you knew this, but I think you'll enjoy it. Uh, when it happened in Tallahassee uh, nine years ago, I had just moved there. So be, be, besides Keith Albritton and Lake 38 and, and a couple of other early acquaintances, I didn't know anyone really in, in, in the city yet. And so our good fellow friend, Braden Lee, moved from Zachary all the way to Tallahassee for three months to assist me. That was uh, one of the, yeah, it was, I mean, such a, a demonstration of kindness and friendship. Uh, and he sort of helped me until I was somewhat independent, you know. Um, and he doesn't, and he doesn't really talk about that a, uh, an awful lot. I'm going to have to have a word with him because, I mean, I'm over at Bennett's right now. I'm less than fifty feet away from him, and, the, and he's working in the pro shop right now. So I'm going yeah. to have to ask him a little bit more than that. But kudos to him for uh, for for stepping up and helping you out in uh, in that big old uh, time of need. Yeah, he really did. Um, and the, and the, it was one of those, it's one of those friendship when, when I called him and told me what happened, he basically, he said, I'm in the car this afternoon and I'm, and I'm moving there. Um, something that I don't know how many people would, would you know, have the fortitude to do. Uh, but yeah, I, the, it's, it's very, it helps to have someone helping around you know, when, you, when you can only stand on one leg. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, certainly limit. Uh, certainly is option limiting so far as mobility is concerned. But uh, we spent uh, we spent a good a good a good fair amount of this podcast on the on the on the subject of your injury, and I certainly wish you the best uh, going forwards. But uh, you know, whenever whenever I was trying to get set up with the with this interview, there were there were there were certain questions and certain subject matters that I was uh, wanting wanting to uh, to basically hit upon uh, and. And a lot of those uh, were about uh, the organization of the of the two major events that you're involved with this season. Uh, the uh, the ninth edition of the San Gervasio Pro-Am uh, presented by Santos de So and uh, the Europe and Africa Water Ski Championships. But uh, let's go on. To, let's go on to the fir- on, on to the first one, because, I mean, it was a ninth edition. I mean, you're close to celebrating a decade of uh, of, of organizing these tournaments. Uh, with with the with the skiers and and everything being very receptive, you know. So uh, so kind of so kind of give us an idea of what it of of what it's like and and just how popular it is because it's not just the pros, it's the ams, uh, the amateurs as well. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's uh, you know the 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 event have that is the dearest to me. Uh, it's it's unquestionable. It's an event that I conceived nine years ago uh in conjunction you know with my my dad and claudio but it was really inspired by me living in the u.s and starting to ski a few of the pro events um and then noticing that there was none in europe so i kind of cherry picked from my favorite events and decided okay i want to do head to head i want to have amateurs um you know it, it really started from there and at the time, there was nothing in Europe, and, and now look how Europe is looking on the pro scene. I mean, just even you guys spe- spend on a regular basis almost a month traveling Europe to, to broadcast very good events that have been arising in the last few years. So to me, almost, I mean, the event is, is, is fun. Amateurs love it. Uh, we do have the Junior Challenge since 2018, which is also very dear to me. Uh, where we invite the top juniors in the world to ski in a head-to-head format. But I think deeply um, it's, it's, what, it's the effect that this tournament had on the 
pro scene in in Europe and you know what could argue in the US as well like it, 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 the the revival of pro skiing in Europe I think inspired uh, US and Canada as well um, you know I'll, I'll leave you with this comment I, I won't name the skier because I don't want to single him out but when we were in Kayafa last month uh, we were sitting on that couch area where the skiers were, were sort of like rest and get ready bef before skiing and uh, and this particular skier, we were looking at the whole, you know, uh, spectacle that was going on uh, in Kayafa that you guys showed so well. And he said, are you proud of this? And I'm like, what do you mean? And he goes, well, without you having that idea in 2014, who knows if this celebration would be here today? And and it really hit home, you know, um, I think that's what that's the the, the meaning that the San Gervasio Pro Am has for me deeply, and then of course you know all the features that make the event what it is: the head-to-head, -head, the uh, the night at the Campagnole on Friday where we give the bibs and we gather everyone before the event. Um, there's a lot of features to it, but deeply is the role that that the tournament has had and arguably still has in in the sport. Okay, so uh, so so that so that tournament uh, took place uh, in the uh, the second week in July, uh, the second full week in July. You kind of swapped uh, dates uh, with a little bit with Caiaphas. I mean, Caiaphas actually took place uh, the weekend after you uh, la last season, uh, which Correct. which kind which kind of brings upon the question. I mean, uh, so far as being able to coordinate those dates and uh, the, those tournaments, how much communication do you have uh, with, with with an event uh, like Kayafa with uh, with George Hatzis to make sure that you get uh, you get the right date and, and everything works out uh, amicably between between both of you or indeed any other events that uh, that took place such as Monaco or Botas or Lacanel? Lots, lots of communication, Tony, because uh, obviously the, the, the great thing that everyone in Europe now wants to do pro events has the, uh, the challenge of trying to coordinate and, uh, for instance, avoid uh, unnecessary clashes like we had last year. So especially last winter, primarily through the Water Ski Pro Tour, there was a lot of effort in trying to, to make sure that all the pieces would fall into place and skiers could ski all the tournaments they wanted without having, without fearing of a, of a conflict, right? Um, and uh, the way it resolved this year was for us to push our tournament a little later, which freed a, an early weekend in July. And, and so we had that nice sequence of uh, Monaco, Lacano, uh, Greece, and, and San Gervasio. Um, so yeah, a lot of communication, uh, and I foresee that happening again this this winter, especially given that there are other organizers who are interested in doing cash price events in Europe. I know that for a fact. So the more the more organizers can coordinate, the more successful their events are. The more skiers will attend because there's no conflict, uh, and the whole thing keeps arising. Right, that's uh, that's the goal. Now, one of those tournaments that I mentioned was the Monaco one, which was the one that uh, stood out for me a little bit in being it was like a midweek uh, 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 pro, pro competition as compared to the other ones, which were spread across maybe a two or a three day weekend. Uh, do you anticipate uh, tournaments, uh, uh, some tournaments uh, taking taking that approach uh, ra rather than rather than having to battle uh, other sites uh, for uh, for a particular uh, weekend in the season of which there aren't that many yeah i think so i think what uh greg defon and alexi keseglu the two uh, young organizers of this new event did was very smart uh they basically got inspired a lot by the swiss pro slalom format so no amateurs uh one day event to preliminary rounds plus eight skier final and you can knock that over in a day um, and given that, you know, there was a tournament in Spain the weekend before, there was Lacano the weekend after, uh, it made a lot of sense to sandwich uh, in a Wednesday pro tournament. I think if organizers don't have amateurs, 
should, should consider these type of uh, midweek tournaments. They make a lot of sense. Uh, the reception from the skier was positive and the scores were high. I mean, there were three skiers with three at 10 to five that didn't make the final. So, they, I mean, the level was high, no matter if it was a Wednesday or a Saturday, you know. Um, so, no, I think, I think for certain tournaments, the, that format works. If you have amateurs, it's a little bit more complicated because obviously amateurs might be at work or at school during the week, uh, but it is nevertheless an option. All right, then. So so going through some of the pro tournaments that we've seen over the course of summer, I mean, that there have been, there've been some, some some amazing scores, of which I was a witness to, to uh, uh in the in the in the previous few weeks, I mean, I mean, like Ali Nicholson was skiing out of her mind, wasn't she? And even Kayafa and 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 also uh, taking the eventual win at uh, San Gervasio. Uh, but uh, I mean, obviously that stands out for me. But which ones stand out for you? Well, uh, for me, obviously Ali uh, taking the win at home, running ten seven in Kayafa. Obviously, the three, four, uh, ten to fives in a row in the first round in Kayafa stood out. Um, but to me, I don't know. I, I, I just give you these two names, and I want to hear your reaction because to me, the, these are the new challengers, and and they are Dane Meckler and Brando Caruso. Like these two skiers are the ones that you know. If you take that, them top threes of you know Will, Nate, Freddie. Uh, and maybe this season even more specifically Nate and Freddie those are the next in line to to bother a lot we saw Dane in Miami uh, at the end of last year we saw Brando uh, in Spain before Monaco uh, and even what he did against Tigas at the Europeans uh, these two guys are going to run 10 to 5 and once they do I think uh, 4 is going to be a very very frequent occurrence and with 4 uh, you still do well at tournaments. Indeed, indeed. So, yeah. So yeah. So those that. So uh, in your mind, uh, Dane Meckler and uh, Brando Caruso were the skiers that kind of stood out for you. And I mean, like, Dan, I mean, uh, uh, like, yeah. and like Dane Meckler for me, kind of already showed us that he was to be to be feared amongst the slant skiers. Just uh, just two seasons ago at the World Championships, where he got into into nine point seven five meters uh, for the first time. But Brando Caruso seems to have found a comfort zone in being able to uh, uh, to be competitive against against the very best in the world. Yeah, you know, Brando. Again, you, you, memory can go back to 2017 Worlds in Paris when he was top seed into the final. I mean, Brando has been amazing for a long time, but I think you might have nailed it. The, the big difference is comfort in skiing against the best of the world, which really comes by going to tournaments, right? Like to continue to go there and be on the dock with, with the best and the most experienced. And... I don't know, something happened to Brando in the last two years where I just seem more geared in, more focused, more uh, thirst, that there's a thirst and hunger for, for wins and scores. And, you know, um, I, I, I think Brando had a, had, a switch, had a switch of gears right around two years ago, and, and we see it. I mean, if you recall uh, Travers Grand Prix last year, everyone remembers that uh, runoff had, a 41 off between Freddie and Will, but right behind them was Brando with four. <laughs> you know, so uh, uh, Brando beat Nate at Botas in a head-to-head. Like Brando and Dane are those guys that are going to be standing on that top of the podium very soon, and once they do. Uh, they're going to want even more. Yeah, and a thing, and a thing also, and it goes back to the comfort thing that I mean, like Brano Caruso has for the last couple of seasons actually ventured outside of Europe and actually competed in uh, in the like likes of the Travis Grand Prix and the Mastercraft Pro and those events that uh, that basically round off the tail end of the season, uh, Ma- uh, Miami Pro Slalom and, and another one. So so being able not to. So giving yourself the ability not to be spooked in a, in a, in a, in a right. change of environment is, is certainly, uh, certainly what I see difference-wise uh, for Brandon Brandon Caruso. Yeah, for sure. You know, like 
uh, as a European skier going to the US for a streak of tournaments for the first time or vice versa, US based skier coming to Europe, like you don't know anyone, you don't know the judges, like uh, it's all new and unknown, right? So it takes a little bit of time to get used to ski in those novel environments without let, let them affecting you adversely, right? And certainly Brando has been getting more, more experience in that. Um, as of recent and, and the scores uh, scores clearly show um, I mean we're, I know we're going to get to Europeans but that first 10-7 indeed in the in the first round of off the dock after not skiing for an hour was just I mean breathtaking you know like perfect literally perfect how you want to run a 10 to a 10-75 and he did it cold off the dock at a final at a Europeans after not skiing for an hour so unbelievable all right then let's focus in uh on the on the next event that you organize because i mean with the san Gervasio program i mean uh, i mean you've done it nine times you're about to do the 10th one in 20 in in 2024 but when it comes down to nailing all, all of the titled european titled events that have taken place at jolly ski uh there's only three of them uh, t- t- yeah. 2007, the European Under 21s, uh, the World Championships, World Junior World Championships in 2010, and then this most recent oh. tournaments, uh, the 2023 ENA uh, European uh, Championships. So one would get the sense that that while you're, that, that while you're pretty enthusiastic about hosting pro tournaments, the same cannot be said really uh, typically for, uh, for, for, the, for the titled events. And, uh, and I'm sure that you've got a strong, strong reason and justification not to up until this time. Yeah, and, I, and I've said it publicly before. I, I don't believe this, the future of this sport is in titled institutional events but it's in professional uh, events and in a professional tour. So naturally, the beliefs I have and, 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 and my partners have transpire into the type of events we try to organize. Um, but, but the Europeans came about about a couple of years ago where uh, in full COVID time, I met my, the mayor of San Gervasio at a gas station James Caburri, and uh, he basically told me that he planned to go for election again in 24, and he wanted a big event in 23 that he could easily get the community and the, and the local press, you know, excited about. And so the title event presents that opportunity um, because it's a championship, European championship, world championship, Italian championship. And... Uh, and so he asked me for a world championship and, and I quite frankly told him that it wasn't within our, our possibilities, but I did say on spot, uh, and all of this is happening as we're fueling up our cars, I did say, well, we could, we could do a European championship. And, and he was very excited. He said, wow, that's great. And so we bid for the 2023 Open Europeans in 21. And uh, I must say that the European Federation was a little uh, struck by it because they said, well, we don't even know who's doing them next year. Uh, Are you sure you want to put a bid for 23? And we said, yes, we want to do it in 23. And then, as you know, the backstory, eventually 22 was supposed to be in Ukraine with the war that was not feasible and Recetto took them on. Recetto is the Italian national training site. And so we were a little fearful that the European Federation wouldn't um, allow the Europeans to be in Italy two years in a row. And then to my happy surprise in Recetto at the final banquet last year, uh, the European president, Patrice, Patrice Martin, announced that the 2023 Europeans were going to be in San Gervasio. So, um, so yeah, unusual for us to do a European championship. But uh, I must say that the feedback I received from uh, team captains, skiers, judges has been positive. So 
makes me think that we might have done a half okay job. Okay. And uh, just trying to give us an overview of what differences that exist in organizing a tournament at this level compared to uh, to what you've what you've ordinarily done with the San Gervasio uh, uh, pro pro am kind of kind of reel off like I don't know like a top 5 t- uh, di- differences in in organization and what has to happen to one and doesn't need to ne- happen to the other type deal. Yeah, of course. So the, I think the the ones that are going to come to mind all fall into the category of uh, uncontrollables. <laughs> so basically, it's all stuff that, you know, it's written in the rules of the Europe, European Championship and how the, the that type of tournament should occur that you just have to do. And they're not necessarily about the tournament itself. So for instance, you have to have doping control on Sunday. You have to have an opening ceremony and it has to happen the first day, at the end of the first day of preliminary competition. You have to have a closing banquet and uh, certain uh, prize awards have to be done at the lake, some at the final banquet. All stuff that, you know, to be honest, it's fine, but uh, are new constraints that I'm not used to. Right. Um, and so it was just a bit of organization. Um, the bib, the way the bib looks needs to be approved by the European Federation. I can't just tell my the company uh, that I normally use, hey, this is, how, this is how I want it. Give me some feedback on design. Like it had to add the number, the bib number had to be a certain size. I mean, these are all minor details that however you're not used to and pile up to a point where you know they give you a bit of stress and you want to make sure that everything is in order um those are those are the main differences like there's an official practice and an unofficial practice uh the official practice is just one ride per skier per event um it has to happen at a certain you know two days before the event like it's it's all these these things and and some of them are in the responsibility of the chief judge and i was lucky enough that we had a great chief judge that you know knew uh this tournament uh inside out and and could answer questions that weren't really my competency to ask um but it was just this marianne persons exactly so the there was this odd feeling of I'm the organizer, but a lot of it I can't organize myself, you know. Um, but but all in all, like we we got into the vibe of it, and and I think the the tournament, I think the opening ceremony in town was was well received. Uh, it was cool to see, you know, as we were walking into town, like a lot of people cheering from the windows. Uh, I was uh, there were there were some cool aspects that you're not going to get at a pro event. Um, but yeah, there was this sense of what is within my control, namely, I would do it this way, but I can't because the rules or the etiquette or the tradition impose that it needs to be done that way, right? Um, so that, that was, that was the, the, the new challenge, let's say. Um, but, uh, but all in all, I think, I, I think it was a good event. We saw good performances, and especially the skiers were happy with the way the ski event ran. That was my, my main thing. I, want, I wanted the skiing to be fair, with good conditions, good drivers, boats were new, like all the skiing-related things, ramp, you know, were, were dialed in. And, uh, and the skiers felt that it was, you know, a fair lake where to perform to the best of their ability. Okay. Yes, and I mean there were some good performances. I mean uh, the uh, the in in both in both tricks events, uh, some some performances that stood out for me. Vincenzo Marino. I mean, uh, for crying out loud. I mean, gone into ten point two five meters for the for the first time in his career. Uh, uh, not one, but a, but six or seven course records were uh, were were, pro- were produced almost seemingly one after the other in the men's jump event uh, in in the in the final. Yeah. So, uh, so I mean, if if you ever needed proof as to how the event skied and uh, and, and how and how it was received, then uh, you pretty much got your answer right there. 
Yeah, I think so, right? Uh, I think the skiers that decided to attend uh, found, a, found a good place and good conditions, even the uncontrollables, the, there was an excessive wind, uh, it wasn't that it was raining or cold, like there, there were good conditions to ski at a high level. Um, and those who were there uh, reported, at least to me, that, that they felt that the skiing was fair. Now, some skiers skied to their potential, some didn't, but that's, that's tournament skiing, right? Uh, but uh, yeah, Vincenzo, unbelievable. He had been chasing that 10-7. Although he's very young, I know he, he could run it the whole season. And finally, he did, uh, he did at the prelims at the Europeans. Um, you know, it was, it was good to see Luca almost getting, it, getting the win. Uh, but then in men's jump, Luca Rachenwald and then Louis Duplan just sealed the deal at the first jump. Um, and then obviously the, the double runoff between Brando and Thomas to win the, the gold was was spectacular. I was watching it. I was watching it on my phone as I was getting accepted into the emergency. But uh, it was nevertheless pretty cool to watch. <laughs> yeah, and I did actually mention. I did actually mention, uh, as f- funny as you should say, that uh, that Matteo is probably watching on his phone right now as he's been carted off to hospital. And you message back saying saying that, yep, yep, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm here. I'm here watching. Um, but no, no, it was a, it was a good event. Um, I would say, you know, uh, also the overall with Edo and and Luca, uh, sorry, Edo and and Louis. Um, no, good, I think it was a good European Championship, um, and I and I hope you know those who, who skied it, those who watched on site, and thank to thanks to you guys, those who watched it from home, uh, had a good time. All right then. So should should you drive should you drive in? Um, uh, well, well, after you have the ability to walk and drive, and and everything has been restored, and you happen to come upon come upon uh, uh, Mayor Mayor Skaburi coming up and said, "Okay, those good championships. Now, 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 can we host the worlds? Uh, would would you be what would you be in a position to say?" Well. Uh, <laughs> my first uh, get away from it would be that allegedly you now need two lakes to organize a world championships. You have to be a two lake site, which we're not yet. Uh, as you well know exactly, there are big plans to divide and extend our lake to have two two lakes, uh, two skiable lakes. So I'll I'll, I'll use that at first. Um, but I must say, you know, I, I, I spoke with my father a little bit and we do have other title events in mind. Uh, I don't know which ones exactly or when, uh, but as of right now, the world championships is just too big of an ask, uh, financially, organization wise. And also don't forget that we are a ski school and we, we need a business to run and we have a loyal clientele of young aspiring good athletes that uh trust in us to be able to train and and i know that with a world championship uh it would it would make it complicated for them so that's not in the cards uh i hope james is happy with it at least for a little while and uh will definitely prepare for the 10th edition of the pro-am and who knows maybe another title event down the line all right then. So uh, so so we so, so I've, I'm I'm rounding off the the questions that I kind of had planned planned to ask you a little a little bit, you know. But uh, uh, one one thing that one thing that came to mind as you as you begin your convalescence a little bit and uh, trying trying to get some mobility back and uh, uh, and and get the pain management under control with the uh, with the ruptured Achilles tendon. I mean. Uh, Around about this time last year, your father uh, was, I mean, wasn't undergoing a similar kind of thing. I mean, but 
I mean, last last season, he he was lying in a hospital bed watching watching the San Gervasio Pro Am, you know, and uh, and just kind of you know hoping for some for some kind of uh, you know miracle uh, to uh, to get him get him not only walking again but also also skiing again. Uh, speak to that a little bit, uh, and and how grateful you are to have your father uh, up up and about uh, where he wasn't this time last year well it's uh you know we all got very scared last year uh what he had which is the guillain barre syndrome is such a rare uh condition that you know for a while we were all uh wumbling in in the unknown uh and then once it was known and we knew that the therapy was easy that was a little easier on everyone including dad but it took months and months of rehab um, a couple of months in the hospital and and three or four out of the hospital to be able to to live a regular life moving around and eventually even uh, do a bit of water skiing Um, it's uh, it's so good you know like especially this summer when dad um, was at the international uh, which is our overall tournament in June that although it's this year was its 18th edition, Dad started it under a different name a couple of years earlier, and it was a tournament for kids. And and last year he missed it, and that was the one that really told me it hurt him to miss. You know, he said, "I've never missed one like this is this is the one I created." And and to see him there, and we had a lot of kids at the, that overall tournament this year. Uh, that was that was the one time where. The, the whole trend this summer was, man, last year I was in, in the hospital. Last year I was on a wheelchair. Last year I had just gotten out of the hospital. This old trend that we had with him uh, this summer. So it, it's very special. And I, as you know, I've interrupted my own podcast because I want to release an interview I did with him. Uh, and now that I'm obviously uh, a little bit more, uh, you know, computer bound, I, I hope to release it soon, uh, but we do talk at length about what happened and, and how that affected him. Uh, and it will be a video one so that we can put subtitles because as you well know, that doesn't speak a word of English, but um, it, it is special to have him back. Um, he, I think, I want to think he has gathered a bit more of an appreciation for the two main things in his life. So his own business and, um, and, and the ski school, you know, that him and Claudio founded. Uh, now that he's fully back into the swing of things, it, it's a little bit harder to see that appreciation. It's a lot of like, you know, this doesn't, shouldn't be like this and that shouldn't be like that. And Matteo, you should be taking care of this. Why haven't you done it yet? You know, it's, it's back to the usual Fidele. But, uh, but I, I do know that there's a deep appreciation for, for what he has created over the years. And... Uh, and for us to know that he's here, you know, enjoying it on his own feet, it's 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 truly special. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. I mean, uh, I mean, when I when I saw him, when I saw him for the first for the first time uh, this season uh, in, in San Gervasio, I gave him a big old bag, you know, and and just. Uh, Almost, yeah. I was almost in tears. As a matter of fact, I'm still tearing up right now, even thinking about it. And I'm sure that uh, that's probably the case for a lot of other folks that uh, that reacquaint themselves uh, with with Fidele. And uh, we, we certainly congratulate him on making his uh, recovery and getting back out there in the water and skiing and uh, skiing to not the highest level that uh, that he's probably used to. But uh, you know, I mean, it. Uh, you know, as as they say, uh, Rome was a bit in a day type deal definitely definitely and you know you you make me reflect on how uh, inspiring it was to see him in the hospital during rehab and all the goals that he set to himself uh, both in the hospital and out so you know when you asked me a few a few minutes ago what type of mindset I, I foresee having or I should have well on top of what I've learned having broken my Achilles before and uh, of, on top of what I know being a healthy, a mentally healthy way of, of going through this, just thinking back of how that did it last year, 
uh, is also a big a big motivation and a big uh, source of inspiration. All right. So as we as we move towards the end of this podcast it's almost it's almost been an hour uh, talking and and chatting away but one thing i forgot to uh, almost forgot to uh, to touch upon and i know you're heavily heavily into slan slansky and 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 claudio uh, benatti heavily into the other events overall and all that kind of thing and that br- and which brings me to this subject you know uh slalomin is certainly certainly getting up certainly getting up there uh, for recognition uh, within within uh, pro, within pro skiing it's always going to be there are uh, tricks and tricks and jump not nearly as much but what i have personally tried to do and you you probably know this already is to put a special emphasis upon overall because i mean that represents in my mind a collection of the sports very best best skiers not a not only being able to do it in one event, but also being able to do it almost equally well, if not better, in the remaining two. And I mean, I, I mean, I've, I've tried to equip myself in in the announcing booth with uh, with, with with my little uh, touch screen and everything, and the and the spreadsheets and what have you, to try and give an instant update on on the results. But do you feel that the overall has still has a viable place uh, within the sport? Uh, 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 at at this level. So uh, the short answer is no, but uh, I think I think the best example that I can think of is is track. Right, um, it to to be a decathlete. Uh, we would all agree that the best athletes in track and field are the decathletes. Like they can do everything, and uh, and that argument is even stronger in water skiing because you think of someone like Joel or Dorian or or Janina or Regina, and you're like, well, they're also among the best, best, best in the world in some of those individual events. Um, but I feel that as of right now, the 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 pyramid of overall skiers is so small, meaning that, that, you know, we lose so many at the mid-level, whether it's because you start you to go to university and you don't have time to, to stay at the lake the whole day, or you start getting into a career, a job, and you can't stay at the lake the whole day. And I, I feel that, you know, uh, sadly, the conditions are not there to see a lot of overall competition. Uh, but then also you have the, the, the striking fact that we are now seeing the highest level of overall uh, we've ever seen and probably even we never imagined to have such complete across the three events and so good overall skiers. So I think sadly the conditions for someone to excel or sorry, for a, for a group of people to excel in overall are not there. Uh, but there are a very selected few that are doing unbelievable things. So I don't know, it's, it, it's a complicated question. Uh, I, see, I see high, high level in, in overall skiing these days, both in the men and women's side. I see a lot of overall skiing in the youth categories. But from, but I know that we keep losing more and more somewhere between U17 and Open, and uh, and I don't know, I don't know if anything can be done at the current stage about that. All right then. Okay, so we'll leave it at that. Uh, thanks a lot to, to you, uh, Matteo Lazzari. Uh, uh, thank you for the uh, for for sparing uh, me the uh, the time uh, to uh, to conduct this interview. I'm, I know you're I know, know you're bu- busy and you've got a lot of uh, fingers in a lot of pies and uh, and and you know and you're trying to convalesce uh, from the injury. And we we'll certainly wish you the very best uh, over the over the next few months as you uh, get back to to somewhat uh, uh, of somewhat mo- mobile uh, status but uh, before we uh, before we uh, uh, part ways and uh, conclude this uh, podcast uh, anything you'd like uh, like to say yes um thank you tony first of all i mean it was it was a pleasure to spend some time chatting with you um there, there is one person that i want to thank 
that you know very well and maybe the, the broader skiing community doesn't know well yet, but she is the one that has been allowing a lot of the events to happen and to be honest, allowed them to be uh, beautiful. I think that's the, the best adjective, like looking good, proper, uh, professional, uh, both uh, on the site side of things, on the on the graphics, and and that's Michaela, that's my sister. Um, she she has been collaborating with us for four years now, but uh, incidentally her passion for skiing which is a new thing for her she just started really skiing three years ago um, also made her game step up on the organization side and uh, for all those of you who have come to ski our events this year last year who have watched them on the webcast uh, who follow us online uh, a lot of the a lot of it is the, the credit should go to Michaela so I just wanted to say that publicly and, and thank her a lot. All right, then. That has been the latest episode of the TWBC podcast. Thanking Matteo Lazzari uh, for his uh, participation. And until uh, the next episode, it is ciao for now. Thank you for listening to the TWBC podcast. Be sure to check out our website at waterskibroadcasting.com. Links to our presence on major social media platforms can be found there, as well as updates to our webcast and this podcast. Duplication or rebroadcasting of this broadcast without written consent of TWBC is prohibited. Subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform and be sure to join us next time for the next edition of the TWBC Podcast.